We don't normally edit this much. Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode number 153. My name is CJ Schrader and with me, as always, my two delightful co-hosts. First off, we have Jess Douglas. Hey, this is Jess. And Brian Brillman. Good day, mate. Why? What? Well, I figured right. I would, I figured I'd talk like you know Jess has gotten familiar to to you oh, know put another ship on the bobby. All right. Um, I, I yeah so, that that wasn't so much while I was in Australia, but I did learn that that mate uh, can be either like a positive thing like hey mate how's it going or a negative thing like all right mate like like, like uh, that's kind of like hey buddy yeah yeah hey exactly. buddy. Exactly. So, yeah. so it could be either good or bad, depending on our collection. I didn't know that before I got there. So my lack of uh, trying to force any kind of adjective to my co-host there means it must be an email show. Because <laughs> it's too hard with the, I, my. I already used male co-host, so I'm kind of out. To delivered on time? I don't know. All right, so we have an email show today. We're going to get caught up on emails again. Um, I tried to make it a little nicer this time and break it into policy email, rules emails, and then other emails where we'll have some Ooh. some discussion topics, I think. Right, cooking tips with Brian and Jess. Tips. All right, so let's start right off with the policy emails. Um, and you can't have policy emails without yet another email from Callie Rainwater. I wish you'd stop, stop emailing us, but... Ahoy! In your most recent what? episode... You said that if it's you don't. Kelly. <laughs> you said that if you number don't... one judge cast super fan. <laughs> you don't keep your hand so... and sideboard separate, i.e., draw from the sideboard. It's now hidden card error rather than deck deckless problem. Since this can lead to some wonky scenarios, I was wondering if you could clarify what the fix is if this happens. Normally, for HCE, we'd have the opponent choose the cards that should have been quote unquote in the hand. But if this happens in game one, then we potentially have a scenario where the player is playing with an illegal deck. In that case, would it be possible to use the deck list to reconstruct the sideboard so the cards in the player's hand perfectly match the cards that would have been in their hand? All right. So I didn't want to stop you, Callie. But yeah, we have we have a guest on today, and it is Callie Rainwater, uh, our second most prolific emailer. Still number one fan. Still, I'm number one fan. (laughs) I think I think that that actually might be Sarah Mox. Oh no no no! We need to make a we need to make a big point that that because Kelly Kelly's been on the show now, she's the number one super fan. Oh okay okay yeah sure sorry sorry Sarah. Ooh, <laughs> she'd be real upset if she'd actually listened. I, I, she actually does. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think so. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we we'll see if she's on next episode. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a message on Facebook. <laughs> Okay. Sarah Mox is the judge manager, in case people don't know that. Judge community manager. Okay, sure. I, yeah, fine. Okay, so, Callie, your question here, which you did actually send in, and we did not answer till today. Uh, you're basically asking, we have a hidden card error. Uh, in our In our previous episode, we said that if you draw a card from your sideboard, that's hidden card error now. And you're asking basically if we let the if we reveal the hand and say we uh, put one card back into the sideboard, if this is game one, we can end up with an illegal deck, right? Because they shouldn't have had an opportunity to sideboard yet. And so your question is, can we just use the deck list to reconstruct the sideboard instead of uh, instead of doing the hidden card error fix? So and yeah. So it's not it's not necessarily an uh, an illegal deck, right? Because when we care about keeping your deck and your your sideboard separate from a from a deckless standpoint, we really care about presenting. You know, there's other wonky ways to use a word from the email that cards from the sideboard can actually end up in your uh, in your library. You know, wishes and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, I hadn't fair. actually considered that. Um. But yeah, I think ultimately, I think a few things are in play here. First off, if it ta- if you have to go find a deck list that generally takes longer than you want to not be giving a game loss. Um, so I don't really think we need to do that. And I think the big point here is that this scenario is basically a corner case. And so 
yeah, do we get kind of a weird result here where they have a sideboard card in their deck game one? Sure. But yeah. this almost never happens anyway. They also have a main deck card in their sideboard. Yeah, well, philosophically, yeah. this is a, an important possibility, uh, partly because we don't want to end up in a scenario where a player can hide uh, the fact that they accidentally started with an illegal deck by drawing a... Like, like say, say I start game one, it's round three, and I start game one, and I, you know, three turns in, I draw a sideboard card. Um, we don't want the player to try to get away with hiding that by drawing by like like somehow putting their the card from their sideboard in their hand and that card being the card that's supposed to be there and then we go oh well we'll just fix the deck and now there's well hold on and you said it's game three right no i said it's round three oh okay it's game one um so we we don't want to end up in a situation where they try to hide that so part of mitigating that is basically being able to say yeah the opponent still gets to choose what's best for them in this scenario. All right, so because of our cutesy interest, we didn't actually give Callie an opportunity to introduce herself. So, Callie, who are you? Ahoy, interwebs! I am Callie Rainwater. I am a level two judge from the Navy. The Navy. That's a place now. (laughs) And you're also a pirate aficionado. I I actually, I was a pirate before I switched sides and I joined the Navy. I was (laughs) captain of the pirate club at my college. Hmm. So, Callie's going to be hanging out with us to answer some emails, because she is actually qualified to do so. I love how that, that, that title has, like, a dual meaning, because you could be the captain of a club and also a pirate captain. <laughs> yes. Yes, that digital. was basically what it was. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, our next email comes from Scott, and he says, Under 2.4 in the IPG, the additional remedy part is a bit confusing. Say Amy plays against Nicolette. Amy is on the play. Amy announces that she keeps her hand. After Nicolette announces that she mulligans, Amy proceeds to shuffle her hand into her library and says, well, then I'll mulligan as well. Will it, will she then be forced to mull directly to five? So what is that part of policy? This is the um, mulligan procedure error policy. And that line is, um, it says something along the lines of, if cards are not removed from the hand this way, either due to an error that didn't lead to too many cards or by the player choosing not to reveal, that player takes an additional mulligan. So the error here is, you know, once you say you keep, you're supposed to keep. But in this case, Amy went ahead and mulliganed again. So that's a mulligan procedure error. And in a mulligan procedure error where the player would have, say, drawn an extra card, we would give them an option. They may either reveal their hand and have the opponent choose a card and we shuffle that card in. I'm sorry, shuffle... uh, no, yeah, yeah, just reveal and choose one now. Or we can have them just take an additional mulligan. Um, since in this case, they didn't take an extra card, right? Like the point we're called over, Amy has shuffled her hand into her library. Uh, <clears throat> so there's no extra card to reveal. That's where this line in policy starts to kick in. And it says, okay, you're getting a mulligan procedure. You don't have the option to reveal a hand. So you're just going to take an additional mulligan. So... The fix for this kind of situation is Amy just draws back to five cards. And this can be a little confusing on the additional mulligan because we're not having her complete the first mulligan, but basically we're shortcutting it. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, Does anybody have anything else about that or do you want to move on to the next email? Yeah, let's go to the next one. Okay. Our next email comes from uh, Isaac. Uh, Isaac says, I'm brewing a combo deck utilizing infinite mana and a repeatedly cast Mystic Speculation, which scries three and has buyback, to set up my library and then kill my opponent with a Singleton Goblin Charbelcher. Uh, The question is, can he pick up his entire deck and sort it as a shortcut? Um, And this is an interesting question because we've talked before about you know loops and having an indeterminate number of times that you're going to do the loop and so on and so forth. Uh, in the case of scrying, um, they're definitely if assuming that he really does have infinite mana and can cast Mystic Speculation as many times as he would like, there is an upper bound uh, that is knowable to the number of times he he can go through this before the library will be uh, in a certain order and. Uh, as long as he states, I'm going to do this a number higher than that upper bound, and then the, the bound changes depending on what the number of cards in the library is. Uh, and I'm no mathematician, but I think it's the number of cards in the library to the third power in the case of Scrying 3, but I could be wrong about that. 
and I'm sure someone will email me and tell me if I am. Uh, so in the case of, assuming that math is correct, in the case of 40 cards in the library, you'd have to do it 64,000 times uh, in order to set the library up. Uh, so as long as he does it more than that, uh, then yeah, he could. He, I'd be totally fine with the shortcut of picking up the library and reordering it. Um, and if the if the opponent wants to stop them somewhere in that shortcut, they need to state that you know where they want to stop them and how they're going to stop them at, 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 at what point in that shortcut. And if they can't, I just let them do it. Um, right. So, so so yes, even though this is a a really weird fringe case. I'd say yes, I'd be okay with that shortcut. Yeah, I was going to say, so So you don't have any concerns here because we always talk about you have to say how many times you're going to perform the loop and, because it's a loop, mm-hmm. and uh, what the game state's going to be at the end. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of curious, are we okay with a game with saying the game state is I have ordered my library, you know, like this. So with Goblin Jar Vulture, it's what, put all the non-lands on top? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, so yeah. the... Uh... I I understand where you're coming from. This often comes up with like the Four Horsemen thing or with some other right. combo decks. Um, usually they are decks that involve randomizing the library until a certain result occurs um, or something to that effect. In this case, we know that if I do this X times, I will definitely get Y result. And it doesn't, like, there's, it's just a fact. And in the case of, um, in the case of those other loops that we've talked about before, where we have a random factor, we can mathematically state that I will eventually get to this result, but we can't state how many times it will take me to loop through this to get there. And because we can't state how many times it will take, uh, we, we can't continue to perform that loop. And that's the main difference between these two situations. So for Goblin Charbelcher, what you want to do is put the non-land cards on top because you reveal cards until you hit a land card. I thought that's what CJ said. Did he say land? No, I said um. I heard, I heard land. Oh, no, okay. I, said, I was actually, I knew a card for once. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I, I would believe you if you were like, oh, no, that's not what he said at all. <laughs> no, this one time, I got it. All right, Brian. Okay, so this email is from our actual most prolific emailer, Eric He. Um, he asks the question, let's say Brian control. Let's say I control. Well, he spelled Brian wrong, so. Um, yes, it's not you. It's yeah, I know, he's spelled, it's some other Brian. Let's say Brian controls an untapped giant tortoise. Uh, <laughs> I love giant tortoise. Uh, gets plus zero, plus zero, plus three while untapped. Okay. Uh, let's say I control an untapped giant tortoise with a minus one, minus one counter on it. Jess lightning bolts it. This must, is this, this must be some other Jess. Um, yep. yeah. So Jess lightning bolts it and Brian regenerates it. Uh, my understanding of the, of how this works is that Brian has a zero three with three damage marked on it. Uh, so regenerate would replace the destruction and tap it. This would cause the giant tortoise to become a zero zero, and it would be put into the graveyard. Uh, is there any time in which a player would have priority after lightning bolt resolves before giant tortoise resolves? Uh, nice. Dies. Dies. Sorry. Uh, okay, so the answer to this is uh, so we have a regeneration shield up. Uh, the bolt's going to resolve, dealing the three damage. Uh, we check the state based actions, and we see that it's a zero three with three damage marked on it. Uh, state-based actions try and destroy it. Uh, the regeneration bubble uh, pops, and instead of destroying it, it's going to tap the creature and remove all the damage marked on it. Okay. Then, uh, since a state-based action did something, we're going to run through the whole list of state-based actions again. Uh, and this time, we've got a zero-zero, and there is a completely different state-based action to handle creatures with uh, toughness of zero or less. So it's going to die, and no one's going to get any priority because state-based actions check, and then they check, and they check, and they check until you go through clean, and then someone can get priority. So Giant Tortoise is D-E-D dead. D-E-D dead. Actually, he does mention in his email, I don't don't copy and paste the entire emails, but he does mention that Giant Tortoise is because it was in uh, um, Eternal Masters. 
Oh. oh. So that's why he was talking about giant tortoise at all, because I was like, why even? All right, Callie. All right. Our next email is, again, from Eric He, who unfortunately still has more emails that he sent to you than I have. Uh, and the question is, for well, melding... Hold on. Hang on. I actually think that's very fortunate because your emails all are crazy commander things. <laughs> okay, so... I stopped sending you guys the math emails. <laughs> it's true. With, with what was it, uh, Radiance and, um, and Inktreader Nephilim, and then there was an Archangel of Thundown, which actually happened in a game that I was playing. I'm sure it's happened in a game. understand what we're keeping away from them right now. <laughs> it's uh, it's thirty to twenty-two, by the way, in case anyone was wondering. Whereas me, original super fan, I have fourteen, and that was across thirty-seven episodes. For the record, the, wow. the, the record is updated like, for like a year. Like actually, basically, it's Wait. a year at this point. Exactly. Hold, hold on. At this point, so CJ said you sent in fourteen emails over thirty-seven episodes. And then you took over Judge Cast. You're like one of these crazy fans that like, like maybe like stalked them and killed them and assumed their identity. Is that kind of the way this is? This is maybe this is uh, <laughs> so gross. I have an email titled "Cage Sun plus Life and Limb plus March of the Machines plus Xenograft on Sacralings." Okay, I was Kelly. I really did <laughs> used to be Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Judge Cass. Uh, I have recently passed my rules advisor exam and I'm looking to take the next step to level one. <laughs> this is me. <laughs> I am certainly not ready yet, but I would like to get the foundation in place. Wait, wow, wait, wait like... CJ, that rules yes. question at the GP Atlanta was your fault now. <laughs> I put nope. together and... that combo in my deck. Wait, hold on. So, so somewhere in these archives, I'll have, I'll have to search it up. There's a question that, that I sent in as an L1, yeah. but I was embarrassed by the fact that I didn't know the answer. So I sent it from, like, a throwaway email account and used a different name so my name wouldn't show up on it. It was dealing with upgrade paths. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I remember we, We've talked about that one on the show. Right. So what's funny about this one is in true JudgeCast fashion, I never got a response. <laughs> oh. In fact, I only got a response to two. Two of my emails. Well... Maybe maybe you'll get a response when Zidimer gets his packs. Yeah. All right. So let's get <laughs> back to the topic. Uh, so, Callie, please read this email. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So this is from Eric He. For melding, if you have Gisela and Bruna, at the end of turn, you meld them. The specific wording on Gisela is, at the beginning of your end step, if you both own and control Gisela the Broken Blade and a creature named Bruna the Fading Light, exile them then meld them into Brizella Voice of Nightmares. My question is, if Gisela is not a creature at the time, do they still meld? Say, if Gisela were an artifact and not a creature somehow. And yes, the wording cares if you own a card named Gisela the Broken Blade and does not care about whether this card is a creature, but interestingly enough, it cares if Bruna is a creature. So if for some reason all of your creatures have become artifacts, then it will not trigger. And artifacts yeah. and not creatures. Yeah, I thought that's, that was weird. It's it's probably it's probably the result of just because it it reads clearer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it it's it's I mean like it seems weird to to care that Gisela is not caring if Gisela is a creature, but caring if Bruna is. But it's probably just the result of the ability reads cleaner if you phrase it the way that it's phrased. So here's what's interesting, though, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, because of the wording of this, then because of just using the name like that, it's basically referring to this card. So if you had a Sakashima the Imposter out copying Gisela and a Bruna, you would actually exile them both, even though at that point you own a Sakashima and a Bruna. Uh, yes, that is yeah. correct, but yeah. but then but uh, the Sakashima would not have... Uh, uh, back. Right, so, right. To, you, that right, doesn't yeah, work. You only so. exile them. Right. You yeah. would not get a creature back. But yeah, I thought, I was like, well, that's kind of weird. I think for the non-legendary ones, it's so that it doesn't exile like all of the copies of it that you happen to have. Like if you've got more than one of the one with the meld ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's not going to try to exile the other one as well. Right. It's going to uh, exile itself only because it refers to itself by name. Yeah, maybe. All right. So let's go to his second question. Um, so Eric, he, he sent an email with three different questions. He, this isn't three different emails, but it's two different emails that we're reading. So his second question is, this is a question of timing, which comes up in Eldritch Moon. Let's say you have a foul emissary in play and sacrifice it to emerge a decimator of the provinces. Also, Eric always gives us the text in the email, which I appreciate because then I don't, don't have to go look it up. So foul emissary. When you sacrifice Foul Emissary while casting a spell with Emerge, put a 3-2 colorless Eldrazi horror creature token onto the battlefield. And Decimator of the Provinces. When you cast Decimator of the Provinces, creatures you control get plus 2, plus 2, and trample until end of turn. My question is, do you have the option of stacking the triggers such that Foul Emissary trigger resolves first and you have a 5-4 until end of turn? Or does the Foul Emissary trigger happen first? So, let's look at when each of these triggers... Um, so you're casting Decimary of the Provinces for its Emerge cost. So at the end of casting a spell, one of the costs is going to be sacrificing a creature. So you sacrifice a creature, and Foul Emissary triggers at that point. The trigger does not go on the stack yet, but it does trigger. Um, I'm sorry. Whoops, I had it backwards. Yeah, or did I say Foul Emissary tr triggers? Yeah, you said Foul Emissary oh, triggers. Oh, great. Then I had it perfect. All right, so Foul Emissary triggers at that point. Then the spell is cast. So the cast trigger of Decimator of the Provinces triggers at that point. Then a player would receive priority because an object has just been added to the stack. And so at that point, the game is going to try to put both of those triggers onto the stack. And since they're both going onto the stack at the exact same time, uh, you, the controller, may order them however you like. So yes, you may have your 5-4 Eldrazi Horror until end of turn. So you, you want to stack them so that the 3-2 resolves first. Yes. All right. All right. Uh, our next good. question. Um, I like this question a lot. Yeah. This is also from Eric Uh Involves casting a spell. Um, the card Ruthless Disposal says, as an additional cost to cast Ruthless Disposal, discard a card and sacrifice a creature. Two target creatures get minus 13, minus 13 until end of turn. My question is, if your opponent only has one creature and you have only one creature, can you cast Ruthless Disposal targeting both creatures and then sacrifice your own creature? I think it's okay because targeting comes before paying costs, but I'm not sure. And uh, actually, yeah, that works just fine. Uh, so because one of the targets will still be legal, even though... So, so yes, let me actually step back and walk through it. So you, you cast the spell, you put it on the stack... Uh, after it's on the stack, you um, you choose two target creatures. So you target your own creature, you target your opponent's creature. And then uh, when you get to the point where you're paying the costs, you discard a card and you sacrifice the creature that it's targeting. But since it still has a legal target, uh, it will try to do everything that it can do and, and it gives the other creature minus 13, minus 13 until end of turn. So it does work like you want it to do. Cool. Cool. One thing I liked about these emails from Eric is he kept trying to come up with a catchphrase like Callie's Ahoy. Like we, we assigned him to be a ninja at some point because that would be the natural opposite. Natural I think oh, at some point he just goes he just goes knee knee for some reason. <laughs> I guess that's what ninjas do. I don't know. The, the knights who say knee. Well, that's, that's a knight, not a ninja. I I guess. <laughs> that's Hard what the ninjas want you to think. Uh, I, yeah. I did get once get duct taped to a tree by a bunch of ninjas. Oh, that'll happen, you know. Uh, let's see. He can't. He can't be a ninja because then we'd never hear him. Yeah, that's what I said. I said you can't have a catchphrase then because yeah, they're silent. Or at least the ninjas in pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> did you know that the view of ninjas as wearing black actually comes from Kabuki theater, where the stagehands would wear black and everyone would pretend not to see them. And so the ninjas would then wear black because the audience would be like, oh, they're just a stagehand handing out props. And then suddenly they're killing people. <laughs> Was that a uh, ninja club or you the treasurer? Subtle but effective. <laughs> I just know random useless facts. All right. Brian. So, Care. Uh, yes, so this email is from Billy. Just Billy. Hi, Billy. Just Billy. Yeah. So the question is, if I drop 
a Bajuka Bog into an opposing Blood Moon, do I get uh, the ETB Graveyard Exile trigger? So, Bajuka Bog is a land that when it enters the, it enters the battlefield tapped, and then when Bajuka Bog enters the battlefield, exile all cards from a target player's graveyard. And Blood Moon says mountains. Lots of mountains. No. Blood Moon, Blood Moon says uh, um, uh, all non-basic lands are mountains. Okay, so... Um, if you drop a Bajuka Bog into a Blood Moon, uh, what you have is uh, Bajuka Bog has two effects. Uh, one is a replacement effect that modifies how it enters the battlefield. Bajuka Bog enters the battlefield tapped. The other is a triggered ability that triggers once it's on the battlefield. Well, once it's already on the battlefield, it's a mountain. Uh, so that and mountains don't have uh, enter the battlefield triggers. So we are definitely not going to be exiling all cards from target player's graveyard. We're not even going to target a player. Uh, but the question is, is my Bajuka Bog, my Bajuka Mountain, is that going to enter the battlefield tapped or not? And the answer actually is yes. Um, so the way, uh, in this particular case, the way the, the replacement effects work, it's going to modify how Bajuka Mountain enters the battlefield. It's not actually on the battlefield yet for Blood Moon to do anything with it. So that effect is going to apply to Bajuka Mountain, uh, and then when it drops, uh, you don't get your you don't get your exile graveyard trigger. Bajuka Mountain. I'm pretty sure it's it's Bajuka Mog, which Bajuka is Mog. Which, yeah, it's where Mog Flunkies oh. lives. Stone best friend. Yeah, well, I'm fanatic about Bajuka Mogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm half mountain, half fog. I'm my own best friend. <laughs> All right. I think we're ready for this. You know, someone, some email said, like, they're like, I like when you try to just throw deep movie references in. So yeah, that's... Hope you appreciate that one, buddy. Uh, we had that entire Big Trouble in Little China episode. I don't even know what that was about. I just feel like that episode was about Big Trouble in Little China. Y'all are right. probably lucky I haven't yet thrown in a Pirates of the Caribbean reference. <laughs> All right, Kelly, tell us about this next one. Okay. This one is also from Billy. And he says, I will preface this by saying actual flip cards and not double facers. And Which is why this one Billy. got in. Yeah, thank oh, you, Oh, is Billy that why it got in? Yeah, because somebody's actually asking a question about a flip card. A real flip card. <laughs> so says, my wife body doubled a student of elementals, and body double is a clone for the graveyard, and when student of elementals has flying, flip it. Uh, and the body double then gave, gained flying, which led to it flipping, because flipped is a status, the copy will still become Tobita, master of elementals, okay. correct? So, so it just gains flying somehow, some way. Yeah. Not, not necessarily, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, some, somehow, some way. Uh, Student of Elementals, whenever it has flying, flip it. It doesn't matter how I got it. So jump, flip jump is a status. Jump, and um, when you clone something, you copy the face of the card. And for double face cards, this doesn't work because you can't see the back face. But for flip cards, because it does become flipped, and you can still see that part of the card, yes, this works. So, so all those all those flip characteristic all those characteristics of a flip card are actually still on the card. They just aren't actually relevant until the card flips. So, the body double has all those characteristics on them. They're just not relevant until the body double flips, and then we have Tobita, master of body doubles. Yes. All right. So, one last rules question. This one's from Aaron, and it says. Oh, man, spell caller man. Number one question lately. Oh, uh, this this event. thing was this thing was crazy at yeah. regionals this past weekend. This thing this was crazy even... at the pro tour this last weekend. Yeah, and this, like nobody knew even, how it worked. This isn't even a question that uh <laughs> that would actually happen, but here it is. So what happens to a spell exiled by spell queller? So spell queller it'll exile a spell on the stack when it enters the battlefield. And it lets the player, the owner of that spell, cast it when Spellcaller dies. Uh, or probably leaves the battlefield. I haven't actually checked. It leaves uh, the battlefield. Okay. So what happens to Spell X by Spellcaller 
if permeating mass, remember he's that guy we talked about from the release notes, that everything it damages becomes a copy of it. So permeating mass is a 1-3. So everything it damages becomes just a copy of it. Uh, so if permeating mass gains reach and blocks a spell queller, but neither dies, which makes sense because one's a 1-3, one one's a 2-2. Two two. I think spell queller is a 2-2. Two two. Yeah. Um, and the answer there is uh, your, your, the spell queller is now a permeating mass which means there no longer exists the trigger to bring that spell back if the uh, permeating mask queller were to die. So that spell actually ends up getting exiled forever. Cool. Uh, yeah, that, that is... Um, that's also true for, like, Fiend Hunter. Um, but it's... I kind of want to point out that it's not necessarily true for cards like Banisher Priest, which have the slightly different templating which says that it does a thing until this leaves the battlefield. That's a, a, that is a continuous effect with a duration that will still know that that car has left the battlefield. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so th that only works because this has an older templating because it's, that's the only thing that can work with this. Like, right. yeah, like, it... like because it needs a trigger in order to cast the spell again, it, it has the old templating. Right. Yeah. Because if, if it was just, if it was on the stack until spell queller leaves the battlefield that like, would make no sense right you'd be that putting the spell back on the stack work. it puts it back on the stack but you can't respond to the ability that puts it on the stack it's just there and how do you uh, choose trigger how do you choose targets then right exactly <laughs> so the spell just appears on the stack so i want i want to two two things about spell queller from this weekend so the number one okay. question i was asked this weekend was uh if the spell queller took a card with escalate and the spell queller dies, can you then escalate the the spell when you cast it? Okay, because escalate is an alternate cost. Uh, sorry, not an alternate cost, an additional cost. Yes, you may. But this was actually the 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 the, the funnest scenario. Um, I had I had a situation. I had a judge call where I had a spell queller under another spell queller. Yes. Okay. Hold on. But here's how it happened. Uh, both spell quellers were controlled by the same player because so player A uh, flashes in spell queller with no other uh, no other spells on the stack. He's just end of turn spell queller. His opponent, in response, flashed in his own spell queller, uh, uh, flashed in his own spell queller, uh, and then the original player flashed in his own his his original uh, spell queller. Okay, so or, or, sorry, stack... not his original. So, so, so basically, the the stack. I'm oh, sorry, he said his original. So, player player A casts spell queller. Player okay. B in response casts spell queller. Player right. A in response casts spell queller. Okay. Okay, and the way they resolved it is uh, the last spell queller resolves, uh, targeting the um, the spell queller. Okay, the 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 opponent's spell queller. The opponents. Okay. Yeah, putting it in. Okay, then, obviously that spell's not there, then his first spell queller resolves, and for whatever reason, he decided to, ca uh, he was like, oh, well, that counters the, the first spell queller that I cast, so he just took it and put it under, and then gave the guy back his spell queller. What? Yeah, like, it, does, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way, because it's not, it's the, it doesn't, it's, the spell queller has to come enter the battlefield, uh, in order for the uh, in order for the exile exile target spell to happen, but they were thinking I, it was like a cast triggers or something like that. But yeah, figuring yeah, out figuring out that was kind of fun. I had a question at F and M, which was um, a silk wrap was exiled by a spell queller, and then the spell queller got flickered. Okay. So, so uh, so that was that, that was a fun stack to try to. All right, Unwind. so Silkwrap reads, when Silkwrap enters the battlefield, exile target creature with converted man costs three or less and opponent controls until Silkwrap Silk leaves the battlefield. Uh, okay. I mean, so it gets flickered. You just get to choose how you want to stack those two triggers. Uh, and right. The, the, and the and trigger, then, unless there's another spell on the stack, the one that targets a spell doesn't have anything to target when you put it on the stack because the spell's not on the stack yet. So the Silkwrap's going to resolve and exile the spell queller. Right. It, yeah. it actually doesn't matter how you order the triggers. Well, Which I, I think mean, you, was... 
You can exile nope. something else with the silk wrap, but yes, what happened yeah. was the silk wrap resolved and exiled the spell queller. Yeah, that that was a bit of confusion too. Is people were like, well, if I let the cast trigger resolve first, can't I then exile that spell again if in a flicker situation? And the uh, answer is no. That that came up a lot this weekend uh, or this last weekend, where people had an Eldrazi displacer and they could flicker it multiple times, right? Uh, and get all kinds of weird stuff going on, and people were very confused and asking lots of questions I couldn't answer that were like projecting game states. They're like, well, what if I do this and then he does this and then I do this and then he does this? And it was like, this is you know. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can flicker it multiple times, doesn't that work in a way similar to the old Oblivion Ring trick? Well, uh, yeah, actually, you can make it work that way. Uh, but uh, what, what do you what, get out of it? You get to exile their spell forever. Yeah, they don't. They don't get it back if they kill the spell caller, or they don't get it back if they kill this. Yeah. So if they're if they're able oh, if you're you. able to. So so you exile. No no sorry you resolve the leaves the battlefield trigger. No, I don't see how that gets you anywhere. Okay, so let's say I have I have enough mana to cast it and flicker it, right? Mm-hmm. And you cast a spell, and I cast Spell Queller. Uh, it's enters the battlefield ability, targets your spell. Yep. Um, in response to that, I flicker my Spell Queller. Okay. Uh, I've got a leaves, a leaves the battlefield and an enters the battlefield trigger. Gotcha. Right. That so, I can put on the stack. Um, actually, yeah, in this case, that doesn't work. There, there is a way to do it, but in this case, I think is a way to do it. But in this case, that actually doesn't work because you have you'd to resolve them. You have to bounce it. Yeah. Because yeah, it's not a re- mage trigger when it enters the battlefield. You have right. to exile target spell. Yeah, that's uh, that doesn't quite work that way. If uh, it was a mage, if it was a may, then you could, but it's not. So maybe if it was like one of those slow flickers where it was like exile it and return to the battlefield at the end of turn, that would work. Uh, yeah, that actually would work just fine. All right, moving so, on. Yeah, the, well, the weirdest one I got was, like, someone's like, well, I'm controlling my opponent's turn with Emrakul, and what happens if I have him cast Emrakul targeting me? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I was just like, you know, because, like, the extra turns there start to get a little weird, but actually the extra turns just equal out to regular turns. No, they don't, because you're not controlling their extra turn. You control their next turn. You control their next turn, and then they take an extra turn after that turn. Right. So I actually just wrote it out to be sure. So like what oh, happens is so what happens is yeah, uh, uh, I cast an Emrakul to take their next turn, right? Yep. They're going to get an extra turn after that turn that I'm taking. Right. But right. This turn that I'm taking is not an extra turn; it's just a regular turn. Right. Um, but if but if he casts Emrakul, if 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 I make him cast an Emrakul, then yeah. he gets to take his extra turn, and then I will take my regular turn, which he will control, and then I will get an extra turn. Uh, because because the turn you're controlling is not an extra turn, and the extra turn has a specific time that it happens, which is after your next turn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so then we insert the extra turn. Uh, I take I, the first extra turn from the first Emrakul happens. Right. Then you control. Uh, then that other play, that next player, his turn gets controlled, and then he gets an extra turn after there, which right. is different. Normally, when you add extra turns, it's the last extra turn given is the first one taken. Right, but in this case, it does, in this the, case the extra turn not. is taken at a specific point, so uh, it waits for that yeah. point to happen. Look at that. Yeah, I totally missed that. I'm glad we talked about this. So let me give the specific wording here. When you cast Emrakul, you gain control of target opponent during that player's next turn. After that turn, that player takes an extra turn. So it's right. after the turn in which you controlled them. It's not just that player gains an additional turn. Uh, right. Okay. So, yeah. so right. it, it could work the other way if it gave them an extra turn now and you controlled them during the extra turn. Right. But but that's not how it works. Right. Okay. So now we're going on to our other topics, our discussion topics beyond, and our discussion topics are not spell queller and Emrakul. That was a pretty good discussion, though. I, that yeah, that was good. Discussion. Well, I because I was actually wrong with the ruling I made. Does I did not notice that. that. This, does this mean this conversation is not going to be in the episode? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did not notice that after that turn part. So I thought the turns would equalize, but that is not correct. It's a good initial response because that's usually how these work. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, okay, so the next question uh, that we have comes from Robert. Um, and Robert says that he was able to make it out to SCG Indy. He was very disappointed that he never got the chance to meet me at SCG Indy. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert. Uh, and yeah, it should be worth mentioning. He opens up this email by talking about he has a lack of L2s in his area, 
and it's difficult for him to test. So mm. that's why he's talking about making it out to SCGMD. Uh, I see. Um, well, if you're interested in testing at SRCD Games event, as an aside, um, your best bet there is to email uh, Star City Games testing email, which I, I think you can actually just email judge at starcitygames.com and see about arranging that, and they'll get in touch with you and possibly your RC and figure out where you're at in the process. Um, but uh, that aside, let's continue with the question. Um, Robert says he had an all-night study session in the hotel and was able to pass the L2 exam. Oh, well, okay, never mind then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was, but your, your advice was still good. Uh, however, the L3 cautioned him that he the, the L3 felt that while his rules and policy knowledge was sufficient to grant him an L2 status, he was largely unaware of what an L2 actually does. Is there any pointers you guys could offer to a newbie? Um, huh. So these last emails are all kind of discussion topics more sure. than answers. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things here I wanted to talk about. One was... You know, I'm not trying to throw the L3 under the bus. I'm sure there's different discussions here, but if you felt someone wasn't ready that they could pass the rules and policy, but they weren't really aware of what an L2 does, would you actually test them? No, but it's also yeah. not that hard to make them aware of what an L2 does. Right. No, it is not. Right. So, so right. So when you when you take your L2 test, there's 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 two big things that have to happen. Okay, after you've met all the prerequisites, there's there's pass the test to make sure that your rules and policy knowledge is there, and they just pass the interview. And really the purpose of the interview, or at least in my opinion, is to answer the question, can this person head judge a PPTQ? Right. Yep. And, and isn't hated by their local community. Mm. That's it. You know. Hold on. <laughs> what? I can do half of that. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, after you botched that ruling and gave the people <laughs> wrong turns with Emrakul. Uh, he didn't even make that play. <laughs> That was one of my questions, though, when he kept, like, trying to figure this out. I was just like, are you are you actually going to make this play? And he's like, maybe. I'm like, okay, let's talk then. Um, so, so, but also I want to hit, the Brian just hit on one of the things L2s do, and that is head judge PPTQs. Yep. So so really, what 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 we want to see from a, from an L2 and things that an L2 largely does, okay, so and uh, with the new world order, the re-level definition, the re-redefinition, whatever, um, L2s have been focused or have been have been re not necessarily repurposed, but uh, refocused on competitive REL events. We'll say that their um, function was clarified. Yeah. Okay. That's that's yeah. That's a better term. Um, so what they what we expect from a from a level two is to be able to do things like you you understand the the pulse of an event and what i mean by the pulse of an event and there was a, a great article that i don't remember who wrote it so uh if i do we'll have cj put it in the show notes <laughs> but it was talking it was talking about like the pulse the pulse of an event so there's when uh when you put pairings up when you put slips up when deck checks are being done then like the calm during the uh during the event and then there's the end of round stuff where you're trying to sweep for slips and get all the last slips in, enter the results, turn the next round, begin it again. So it starts becoming becoming a rhythm, and we want we want our L2s to understand that rhythm, uh, and and where they fit into it. So that's that's in my mind that's the big part of it. So if it's kind of one of these things where you're 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 posting pairings, you're passing out slips, you understand that. If you're passing out slips and you get a judge call, will you go answer that judge call because you can finish passing out the slips after it's done? You know, those those are those kind of things are the things that we want uh, we want to see. Another so me... thing. Go ahead. Uh, another thing L2s do is they test L1s. Yeah. And so it's important for L2s to have a sense of what L1s should be able to do and whether a candidate is actually a good candidate for testing, you need to be able to judge other people because you don't want the person who has absolutely no social skills and is going to run really aggravating FNMs and make the players not want to come back and think poorly of judges. You don't want that person as a judge representing the program. So so the, the question he's got is, is how do I become 
how do I become aware of the things that that, that L2s do? Where can I go? And uh, that, that can be actually kind of hard when you're now the L2 and you're expected to run a, a PPTQ. Um, so where, where, can you, where can you go? Uh, there are some articles on, on blogs about running things, but really I would actually suggest go to a PPTQ run by another, uh, another judge and, and just watch, you know, kind of observe what they're, what they're doing and iterate on what they do. What did they do that they liked? What did they do that you didn't like? Uh, why did they do the things that they did when they did them? You know, ask those kind of questions uh, because really just having uh, an example is a huge part of, of getting that worked out. That's one of the reasons why for the, for the requirements to, to test for level two, we, re we require you to have worked a multi-judge event, a comparel event. The hope uh, uh, out of that requirement is that with the with the uh, now probably the L two head judge, because most likely it's a it's a PPTQ or something higher. You're going to learn all of those things. There's kind of this this period that we were at for a while where GPTs uh, were comp rel encountered uh, for this requirement, but didn't necessarily have to have an L two head judge. Uh, that's that's fixed now. Uh, but there was a period of time of about three months where it was it was a thing. Another great resource is just other judges. I don't know if this person put their region on the email, but in the southeast at least, we have uh, Slack chats for the judges to chat with each other, and we've got rules and policy chat, and we've got SOS help chat, and just being able to talk to other judges and run through scenarios with them and being like, hey, I've got this event coming up, do you have any advice for me? Um, and then at the event, if anything goes wrong, you've got someone to reach out to who has been through this scenario before. So one thing I love about the judge program too is you know what a level two does is as much as they want, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, so we say, yeah, you had judge PPTQs, you can certify others, but the minimum requirements are very low. And I mean, obviously just like... Um, in office space, I hope you go for a little bit more than the minimum amount of flair. But if you wanted to, you could just judge two events a month and write one review a month. Two, and, uh, two events a month? Two events a year. Okay. Two events every 12 months, specifically. Yeah. I was uh, about to say, one I'm, review. I'm lapsing back to L1, man. <laughs> well, threes. Never mind. Never mind. I, mean, um, <laughs> I, I judge say two events a month, right? Yes. Well, I don't. Um, but yeah, yeah. So if you don't want to get into that mentorship thing, you don't have to. But if you do want to, you absolutely can. And if you want to be a part of a project, you can. That's our whole last episode, right? Mm -hmm. yep. So yeah. in some ways, it's up to you what you want to do. It's just we do expect an L2 to be able to head judge PPTQs. I think that's the biggest thing. And, be and maybe floor judges at GPs and SCG Opens. Yeah, and the and the best the best way to get that knowledge and the best way to get that experience, if if you don't feel that you have it already, is go play in a PPTQ run by somebody else. Yeah, yeah, you'll um, see a lot of things they do wrong. Oh, <laughs> you'll, like, you'll be like, oh, but, what's wrong here? But then you can actually uh, talk to them, like, hey, why did it take you twenty minutes to start round one? Well, talk to them. You know, yeah, and maybe... but I, I, I tell you what, I'll, I'll actually offer this this up for the, the, the author of this email, uh, you know, just as a, as a personal thing. Um, if you have any questions, if you have any questions that you, you want to ask, you know, PM me on Facebook. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of them if, if you're if you're maybe uncomfortable talking to, to the L3s in your area. Cool. If All you right, guys hear oh. pitiful meowing, that's my cats claiming they haven't been fed and they're lying. Okay, I understand that. All right, let's let's move on to the next one, Brian. Okay, so this one is from Sergio. Uh, this is the question is uh, a summary of it is what oh, do you that's do? That's the whole email. Oh, is that the whole email? It's not. A... <laughs> I mean, I think it was two sentences, but yes, that's it. Oh, okay. I thought this was a summary of it. Uh, the question of the month, I guess, is what to uh, what to do when someone shows up at my store with obvious or not so obvious falsifications. So, uh, assuming we're not talking about uh, dentures, uh, we're talking about uh, fake cards. Um, basically, right, he means counterfeit cards. 
Yes, he means counterfeit yeah. cards. Uh, so let's 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 before we get into this, I guess let's talk about the difference between proxies and counterfeit cards. Okay. Um, a a proxy realistically is a card that you are you know you you've grabbed a sharpie and you're writing something on it and uh, you're using it for playtest with your buddies. Okay, and it's not intended to go into a real deck. That's kind of the colloquial term for proxies. In events, the term proxy is a something that is issued by the head judge under very specific circumstances, uh, which is basically like a card gets damaged, um, or it comes out of the booster pack with like the little wavy wavy uh, cut at the top or something like that. And the head judge will issue a proxy. They'll get a card and they'll, you know, a good old revised planes and write something on it. And they have issued the proxy for that event. Uh, it's not issued because, you know, you pulled a, a sweet foil Liliana and you don't want it to get damaged in your in your draft deck. That is not a valid reason for the judge to issue a proxy. Okay. If you pull a warped foil Liliana that is going to be a marked sure. card in then, then that's, that's a little bit different, but but I guess the the main point with a proxy is um, it's not a it's not a very good replication, and under no circumstances is it an attempt to pass it off as the real thing. Right, a proxy is a clear stand-in for a different for a real card. Yeah, I see a lot so, of pro proxies that are just the print off of the card, but they're like a bad printing just so it has all the card text and stuff because commander players play them all the time. Sure. So, so if someone's if someone's playing like their EDH deck or their casual deck, and they got a proxy printed off, or they've got they've got a proxy of something, right? Um, if they're not actually playing in an event, uh, you as a judge, we actually don't care, right? You have no authority over a non-event, yeah. right. uh, Game as a judge, right? They take that same card and they enter it. In, they they try and run that in an event. Um, whether it's a it's a planes with uh, with Liliana the Veil written on it, or it's a uh, color photocopy of a Liliana of the Veil, or it's one of the you know uh, uh, bulk lots of whatever cards that are out there that you can that you can buy on eBay, uh, that's that's a problem, okay. And depending on what they did is is how big of a how big of a problem it is if it's Oh crap! Um, I forgot. I left this in. I left the planes with Liliana of the Veil written on it in my deck. I've got the real one right here. Okay, that's no big. I mean, well, that's still an issue. Okay, because they don't actually have a Liliana of the Veil in their deck. But no, it's they not have a, planes. They have a planes in their deck. So we correct uh, to match the deck. Right. However, if it's a if it's a card that they're trying to pass off as the real thing, okay. Then, then that's a a more serious problem. Right. Um, so let's let's say you're you're looking at it and uh, the Liliana looks off, and you pull it out and you do the the light test or whatever, and it fails badly. What then? Well, I think uh, we'd have to determine whether they knew that it was a fake because a lot of players wind up with fake cards that they don't know are fakes because they bought them from shady dealers. Yeah. So so yeah. So so basically, what we're we're gonna try and do is determine intent, okay? And if they knew, then their reports going DQs be you know you're writing a DQ and sending them on their merry way. If you believe that they didn't know, uh, then what's gonna happen is well then they have uh, a deck deck list problem and we're gonna fix it and we're gonna continue uh, we're gonna continue on. Uh, I would um, like to point out here that the vast majority of players, uh, and this is, I think, a, a misconception a lot of judges have, the vast majority of players who have counterfeit cards don't know they have counterfeit cards. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is counterfeit cards are not things players, generally, are not things players get intentionally to play cheaper cards in events. They're things unscrupulous buyers and dealers get to sell at higher prices. This is much more likely that someone has purchased a, a counterfeit card unaware and tried to play it than that they purchased a counterfeit card in order to get it on the cheap and try to get away with something. Yeah. Although if you run, if you read Reddit, you do run into these people that are like, oh, no, I do it. 
Sure. Yeah, you know, there there definitely that's, that's are people that do it, and I wasn't trying to imply that there are not. I'm simply saying that it's very easy, and I usually see whenever a, a, a fake card comes up, I usually see judges that try to jump to, or they just automatically jump to the conclusion that this player knew what was happening without even getting into an investigation, and they start their discussion from the basis of, of a, be- right. a belief that they've, and, they've already done something wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's don't do that. Investigate it. But it's most likely that the player does not know. Yeah, keep, keep in mind when you're approaching these people that a lot of times, a lot of times, in addition to whatever conversation that you're going to have with them, uh, they just lost $100 or yeah. $200 or... In some cases, they bought a whole deck, and it's right. like they're out of grand. So, right. you know, keep keep in mind that when you're just like, you know, you start asking them questions about, hey, is this fake? They're gonna go. They could very easily go into like denial or panic or shock or tears or anything along those lines. Um, but here, here's the the big important thing, okay? In in all of this, so, well, not the big important, but one important thing. Um, you have zero authority to confiscate uh, those cards. Yeah. They are not your property. You are not the police. Right. Uh, you have no. You have no authority to take someone's property. Right. So don't. So so I have a related question on uh, on proxies, which is actually from my personal experience. I was playing my pirate deck, and my pirate deck played a Rashadan port because it is a port. <clears throat> So, of course, I had to play it. But, of course, at this point, I did not have the funds to purchase a Rashadden port, so I played a gold border port because I was playing with my friends. Mm-hmm. And okay. and then I show up at the Commander Pods at GPs with this deck, and I sit down with the deck, and I'm like, oh, crap, I've got a gold border card in this deck. Okay. So, as as a judge, would you insist upon pulling the card out and replacing it with a basic land, or would you allow the players to just go... Hey, if it shows up, it's a swamp. Well, you're in a commander pod, so this is regular REL. This yeah. is you're also, it may not you're even be regular REL. It's it's a casual event. It's so, yeah. uh, I think there's a question there that needs to be asked. I think this conversation begs the question that gold bordered cards are in fact illegal in that event. Um, so let's ask that question. Are they? It is being entered in for prizes and stuff. Is it sanctioned? It'll be sanctioned as a casual event. Yeah. And there's your answer. Uh, GP. Right. Okay. So, so it could still be a Rashad and Port if all the players agreed? No. No. It's a sanction it's a sanctioned event. Sanctioned event, yeah. So you okay. have to use legal cards. Okay. Right. So so it is a casual event and um contrary to to popular beliefs, uh you still have to use genuine cards that have black or white borders in those events. Yeah. Uh, now, that being said... getting a planeswalker point. Like, oh. so that's a little awkward. Uh, I'm not actually sure that's strictly enforced that way because I could easily see myself trying to sanction a, an event that was all un, unglued and unhinged cards as a casual event. And I wouldn't see a problem with that. Well... So that's a, this, is a, this is a thing where... I think if you go to a GP, using a, a gold-bordered card in an event is not a, not a good plan. Uh, if you're like a local store owner and you want to know whether or not they should be used, you should probably contact your WPN rep because, strictly speaking, per the MTR, they're not allowed. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could get some kind of exception for that if you want to run something special like that involves silver or gold-bordered cards, not fake cards. I, I have a question to put you guys on the spot. Um, why can't we treat this? So say they have one counterfeit card in their deck. Uh-huh. Why can't we treat it kind of like a marked card and, you know, just give them 10 minutes to replace it? I would, I would treat it as though it were a missing card. Right. Which like this, person, this person's deck is illegal because there's like this, this person's deck is illegal because they currently have 59 cards in it. Mm-hmm. So we're, so we we're basically treating it as if that card does not exist because it is not a real card. Yes. Right. So, so if we go tokens in there. If we go, hey, you got 59 cards here, and they go, oh, man, I could replace it with that one from the dealer booth. I'm fine with that. Yep, absolutely. Okay. But if they go, I can't, I don't have anything to replace this with, then then we're going to move on to replacing it with a land. Yeah. All right, Callie, take us out. 
All right. Our last email is from Daniel. And he says, I'll admit one of my biggest fears of becoming a judge is getting a call wrong. If I'm the only judge at an event, say an FNM or IQ, what happens if I make a ruling and later learn that I made the wrong call? What steps should I take to rectify the situation? Have you guys ever made wrong calls? And if so, what happened? I so. have absolutely done that. <laughs> well, luckily, uh, after editing this episode, I will have never made a wrong call. Uh, <laughs> right. right, guys? Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I made a wrong call at my first big event. I made a wrong call at my last big event. <laughs> I, yeah, I made, I made one at like my second uh, event, and I've made some occasionally uh, in more recent events. Yeah, I've, I've, I wouldn't. I'm not trying to say that it's common that I make a mistake like this, but I have definitely on multiple occasions made made mistakes in tournaments and had to go back later to those players and apologize yep. um, and so that right there is what you do yep and if possible if you make a mistake and you realize it right away and you can go back and stop the game and fix it yeah by all means go fix it but if it's you know it's an hour later and their game is done uh or if it's the next day and they're at the local store and you, you're like oh that's that guy i gave the wrong info to or, or whatever just go apologize let them know hey uh i wanted to let you know in that judge call we had where i came to the table uh, I was wrong. I looked it up later, and this is what happened. This is what it, the, the truth is. And I'm really sorry that happened. I wish I could go take it back, but I did want to let you know that that's not the correct ruling. This other is the correct ruling instead. Yeah. Yep. And this is how you prevent uh, yourself from becoming the other judge. Uh, yeah. Right. That other judge said. Right. right. Yeah. I feel and, there's. And you... Sorry, go I feel on. there's really two things that uh, going back and apologizing accomplishes. And one is now the players have the correct information and aren't going to be continuing under the wrong information. And the second is you have gone and apologized to them so that if they find out that the ruling was wrong on their own, then they haven't just had a bad experience with a judge and go, oh, mm -hmm. man, judges give us the wrong information and they're out to get us. Yeah. Yep. And I'd say, um, I'm trying to think, I think every time I've had this happen, they, they've taken it pretty well. I mean, they understand that people make mistakes, so mm -hmm. uh, they take them pretty well. If you do get someone, you know, so I'm trying to imagine the situation where it's game two, and you know, they're like, "Oh, I would have, I would have won if that was the ruling you had made." Can we do anything here? And 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 I think the situation there is just to apologize again, but no, you know, that was your ruling at the time. We can't go back and fix it, but you know, just want to let you guys know for the future, you know, this is what the ruling should have been. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter how long it's been either. I, I, I uh, the first legacy tournament that I had judged, I made a mistake and I didn't see that player again for a month. And a month later, he came back to the next legacy tournament that I was head judging. And I saw him and I was like, hey, last month I gave you this ruling and it's still in front of my mind because I, I made this mistake and I feel bad about it. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to let you know that this actually works this other way. Um, and so it's it's. The important thing is that you try to set it right, but don't fret too much if you make a mistake. It, it does happen. Um, it's actually just kind of comes with the territory of being a judge that uh, that is human, that eventually you'll make a mistake. Yep. And what, one of the things about being the head judge is that you have the authority to be wrong. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> but we don't want to be. You, you also have right. the responsibility yeah. to be right. Yes, but... <laughs> But if you are wrong as head judge, then that becomes the ruling for that event. Try to be right to prevent events from going wrong. But um, yeah, if it does happen, it happens. Right, so that's uh, another thing is that uh, it becomes the ruling for that for that ruling. Um, right. That's an important distinction. I, I think so. So it's yeah, it's possible that you could be like for this event, islands make black mana, uh, but. I've, as a head judge of a large event, made mistakes that I later realized. Um, and the fact that I made a, mis a significant mistake, say, in round two of an event at one table, does not mean that the thing I made a mistake on is now works the other way for every match in the rest of the room. Um, if another judge that I'm working with, you know, I'm the head judge of the event and I've got a staff of judges, if those judges are going out and making the correct ruling, it doesn't now make them wrong because I made a different ruling earlier in the day that was was incorrect. Um, so so 
while it is true, also just kind of take that with a grain of salt because at some point you're going to realize you made a mistake and want to go fix it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And one thing to help out here is uh, I'm, I'm going to give a little plug here. I like taking a lot of notes at events because mm -hmm. it's helpful in a lot of scenarios. If you do take good notes of the judge calls you take, then it might be easier to find those players later if you find out that you were wrong. Ah, so do you include like the table number and round of, uh, of judge calls that you take? I don't always, but I, I, I include the round. I definitely include okay. the round and, um, and maybe I should include the table number because clearly I need to take better notes according to some players. I mean, you need, oh, come on, we're not getting into that, but you need the, uh, you need the table number if you get appealed anyway. True. I mean. Yeah, if I get appealed, I'm going to write down the table number so I can go right. to the head judge and be like, hey, this table number, um, because man, I can't find my car when I park it. I always park in the same <laughs> row so that I know where to find it. I'm not going to be able to find that table again if I don't write right. down. All right. Well, our inbox is a little empty now because we have done another email episode. So if you want to help refill that inbox, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. Please understand that we either reply immediately or within three months, and I'm sorry. <laughs> that is still the policy. It's hit or miss. Um, but, yeah. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Insta us on Instagram. We don't have an Instagram. I don't know why I'm saying that. Tumblr. <laughs> all those things. So, yeah, if you ever want to contact us, please send us another email. Maybe if you think you're the actual contender for most emails sent to us, maybe I've missed one. Doubt it. But if you think you are, let me know. Oh, challenge. Maybe yeah, maybe there's someone else out there and they just don't have as recognizable of a name and I haven't picked up. All right, uh, Callie, thank you so much for being on. Uh, yeah, can can I plug stuff now? This yeah. is this is what Chris gets to plug This is that part of the show. What would I, you want to plug? Uh, I have a blog. It's about Commander. Oh. Okay. Everybody acts shocked. What um, is it? It's www.masteringcommander.com. It, like mastering with an ing, kind of like master and commander, but mastering because because puns. Oh, that's clever. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought you said master and commander. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you spelled it. I I, I wouldn't have yeah. figured it out, but but it is clever. That was a good movie. I've never seen it. CJ can CJ can put it in the show notes. It, I'll, I'll send him a link. Yeah, with the URL, Russell Crow, man. Yeah, it might be a book, but or something like literary or whatever. I think Master and Commander was originally a book. Eh, and then it uh, got, this, it those things with words. All right, as per the ancient pact, whenever you get on, you get to plug whatever you like. So there you go. Uh, anything else, Callie? Sometimes we let people put contact info out there, but since you're a mysterious figure on the internet. Maybe you don't. Yeah, I, I have Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I to follow JudgeCast and to follow the MTG Judge Twitter. <laughs> and Those are good I Twitters. post things occasionally, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't remember my Twitter handle. Yeah, that sounds about as effective as following me on Twitter, frankly. <laughs> I don't. I haven't logged in in a long time. Okay. Anything else from the rest of you guys? Nope. All right. Well, then, once again, thank you, Callie, for being on, and I'd like to thank all our listeners for another email-packed episode. My name is CJ Schrader, and I keep it fair. My name's Jess Dunks, and I keep it fun. My name's Brian Prillman, and I keep all counterfeit cards from events that players bring. I don't don't actually do that. Don't. I'm kidding. Don't do that. My name's Callie Rainwater, and I keep it fantastic. Get it? Get it? I'm a fan. Uh, no, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it.